Cannabis seeds are not all bred the same. Some are bred for indoor growing and have little relationship to the geographic area that are grown in because they never actually interact with nature. Other seeds are bred for outdoor growing and historically have come from California. But nowadays, as cannabis is being normalized and breeders have been able to come out of the shadows and connecting groups, we are finding that each bioregion is starting to develop seeds that work best in their own area. Where I live in the Pacific Northwest on Vashon Island, we need genetics where the flower finishes quickly and early before the October rains start. Up until now, that has usually meant growing cultivars that bloom for eight or nine weeks, ending the mid to end of October, and we just have to go in knowing that they probably won't fully mature before the rain and cold set in. Now, though, breeders are bringing seeds to market that finish in as few as 50 days, putting harvest more towards October 1st or even earlier. These new genetics open up outdoor growing to a much wider range of home growers who live in areas of the country with shorter summers. And to these breeders, we are eternally grateful. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. The intro to today's show is going to be a little longer than usual. I have two extra topics I want to cover with you. First, I want to give my sincere thanks to Zach Badgett for saving my crew on our way to the Can Illuminati party on Saturday night of Emerald Cup. He and his buddy Brennan were following the crappy driving directions that Google Maps was giving out to the party. Along their route, they came across my crew in our car that had gotten stuck in the mud on an unimproved road where we should not have even been in the first place, but Google Maps took us there. Not only did the guy spend a good amount of time trying to pull our car out of the mud, but Zach even went all the way and used his AAA membership to get a tow truck out there, which got us out of the mud with no problem. Not only did Zach offer to let us use his AAA membership, but it meant that his good time at the Can Illuminati party was interrupted a few times because he first had to call AAA and then go back again and meet up with the tow truck folks. So thanks to both you guys, and especially thanks to Zach, who gave up his money and time to make sure that we were okay and able to get to the party instead of being stuck out in a field somewhere due to bad directions. I offered to pay for Zach's AAA membership for the year in thanks, you know, but he wasn't having it. He just asked me to let him know if I heard of any really good hash jobs for an experienced professional hash maker. Well, this is for you, Zach. If you listeners have a legal cannabis business that produces ice hash or hash rosin and you want a trustworthy guy who is easy to get along with and has solid production skills, I encourage you to reach out to Zach Badgett on his Instagram that is constellation underscore Carolina. Zach is based in Washington State right now, but he is willing to move for the right job. He is presently on the hash production team at Constellation Cannabis. If you follow my Instagram, you have heard me talk before about how great their hash and hash rosin carts are. They know Zach is looking for a role with more responsibility, so he said it was okay if I tried to get him a job more publicly with one of you great listeners. So thanks again, Zach. You are a shining example of the cannabis community looking out for each other when things go bad. 
Okay, the other thing I want to do is to thank those of you who have left the hundreds of positive reviews of Shaping Fire Online where you get your podcasts. You know, I'm usually so busy doing interviews and traveling and just, you know, doing life that I never really looked at the reviews people were leaving about the show. Those reviews are really important in order to be seen. So I'm really grateful for anybody that leaves a nice review wherever they get their podcasts. Over the holidays, I was reading some of the reviews left on Apple Podcasts, and I want to share just two of them with you and thank the folks that left them. So first of all, I want to thank KSIDEL77, who says, Well done. There are a few good cannabis podcasts out there, but Shango is possibly the best host in that he asks good questions and isn't afraid to let the guests talk for a while without interrupting. Tons of knowledge while still maintaining a laid-back atmosphere for the guests and the listeners. Well done, Shango. And then also, CBDNA Labs says, The best. I don't have a far commute to work, but I wish I did. I have been looking for excuses to drive for months because of Shaping Fire. Many thanks to Shango and his guests for an incredible podcast. I have found answers to questions I didn't even know I had on every episode. Bravo. So, you know, hearing this feedback is really inspiring. So thank you to everybody who left a review. Today, my guest is cannabis breeder Nat Pennington, founder of Humboldt Seed Company. Nat has been providing cannabis seeds since 2001 and has been growing cannabis professionally since he was a teenager. Nat is also a world-traveling biologist and fisheries expert who has helped defend the environment and the rights of indigenous people in the Amazon, as well as his present fight to restore salmon habitat in Northern California. Today, we're going to talk about breeding cannabis for short bloom cycles, as well as a bit on autoflowers, tissue culture, and genetic markers such as breeding. Welcome to the show, Nat. Well, thank you. So glad to have you here. So, you know, I've been aware of you for years, but I really only zeroed in on you after your interview with Kevin Jodry during the Wonderland Nursery Seed Series, which Shaping Fire sponsored. I got to watch that interview and I'm like, oh man, this guy's cool and he's got depth and oh man, I want to hear him a lot more than 20 minutes. So so I, I then recently was checking out your new 2020 seed catalog and I saw all these cultivars with bloom cycles under 60 days and, and then you totally got my attention because... Because, you know, most of us outside California do not have the same perfect cannabis growing weather that you have there. And we need shorter bloom cycles. And, and you've bred flowers as short as 45 days, which is a godsend when trying to beat those October rains. So up till now, if I wanted to get something under 50 days, it was probably going to be some kind of shishkaberry crosser or something. What inspired you to start to cross and sift specifically for short blooming flowers? Yeah. So, you know, we were obviously humble is not what people commonly think of when they think about California in regard to weather. You know, we're not out here, you know, wearing shorts and tank tops all year round. We have quite quite a, a normal, you know, decent winter. And really, uh, October, it gets a little touch and go, especially towards the end when it comes to not only just like having to avoid um, molds and mildew and things like that, but even like frost, depending what your elevation is. And, and Humboldt also is this area with terrain and mountainous terrain. And so, um, yeah, anyway, we definitely 
do breed for shorter season flower or shorter flowering type cannabis. But I do have to say that really initially that was an inadvertent thing. And, you know, we've been breeding here at Humboldt Seed Company for over 20 years. So the story of how we started doing shorter season varietals is is unique and interesting. Can it can I really dive into it? Yeah, yeah, we want to hear it. All right. So for folks out there that have done a lot of breeding, you may have noticed how quickly cannabis acclimates to your environment. And I, I kind of think it's one of the more malleable crops out there as far as, you know, really changing, uh, even in the course of a generation or two, or I don't know if folks have noticed, but like even clones that obviously don't, aren't, you know, going through when they're propagated, they're not having genetic, you know, cellular meiosis or whatever. So even clones I've noticed can have kind of epigenetic changes and adjust to their new indoor environment, let's say, or, or vice versa. So cannabis malleable species. And what, what I found was, you know, basically our breeding practices, particularly back in the late nineties and early two thousands were a little bit more kind of, you know, we weren't as, as specifically directed or focused. Um, and I, say I I can't really blame you know that was sort of just right after cannabis was legalized medically in California and you know there it was okay that we weren't exactly like the most professional (laughs) (laughs) but um what you know one of the things that we would do is like we're making crosses with a popular clonal variety that might be going around Humboldt or, you know, as much as, as often as those, as the clone crosses, we're finding these wonderful genetics that have been, you know, kept alive in the hills of Humboldt in seed form and picking the best and making crosses from those. But one of the things when breeding, you know, with regular seed, doing regular male, female breeding is essentially you're waiting to find find out what sex this lot of plants that you're picking from might be. So let's just say I'm going to round off numbers to make this easier to understand. Let's just say that we're breeding uh, our mango tree line and we crack 200 seeds and we're looking at, and this is back then, we're doing bigger populations these days, but we've got 200 seedlings uh, in trays. We transplant them up into a you know, five-inch pot or a gallon or something like that. And now they're like 15 inches, maybe a couple feet tall. So we're starting to like look at the sex and determine, you know, really what we would do is make sure that we had 
the best looking plants out of that larger population and set them aside as our, our breeding plants. And we, you know, as males were showing their sex as well, we'd be, you know, rubbing the stems and looking at the structure and doing all the selection that we do for males. But, um, the reason, I mean, we were already, we already knew that we were really, really interested in breeding. And I mean, it was only a few years later that we kind of formalized that by going and, and getting the, you know, the business Humboldt seed company down here in Eureka at the courthouse. <laughs> but, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was so, so far, so long before, you know, we have like humble farm and humble everything you could ever imagine. But this was like, I was, I just felt so funny in the courthouse because the ladies there and I was asking, is there a Humboldt seed company? And she's like, Oh, let me check the databases and stuff. She's like, no. And I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to, I'd like to start a business with that Humboldt seed. And she says, she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? Are you doing? <laughs> and I just said, I'm doing vegetable seeds and, uh, where's your location? And I gave her my address and you're going to sell at farmer's market. And I said, yes. And <laughs> I think at that time we were, we've always had different kinds of seeds. Um, you know, in reality, uh, my intention was to have a cannabis seed company, but <laughs> down there that day at the courthouse, it was, it was just humble seeds of any kind. So back to the point, um, I uh, knew we wanted to breed. I knew that that was what really interested me. And so every year, the first priority was pick your breeders and set them aside. They're not going to be in the main garden area. So pot them up, take care of them, make them happy. You know, then I'd go and later on I'd do my whole breeding setup, but set them aside. And really what I found over the years is that had a huge effect on the flowering time of the plants because here I was looking and choosing for the breeding population first. And without even thinking about it, I was inadvertently selecting for the, the ones that had that pre-flower, the, the way that we determine sex mm-hmm. on on regular plants without, you know, genomics, um, which you know I find to be relatively easy. It's it's hard for some folks, I think, but uh, you just just experiential knowledge. You know, you get it once you see enough little male parts. And yeah, like, it becomes it becomes really familiar to you, and you can go, ah, oh, male, female, male. But I get where you're going. You you were you were splitting up these plants, and so because you you were naturally choosing plants because they were showing early, which means that they were getting a business. Exactly. So they were the ones that they were the ones that were probably you know that's a relation, and and it's a relation that I've I've actually seen as tangible is that really. 
the ones that tend to, you know, identify themselves as male or female earlier on, uh, are also a little bit, uh, you know, the earlier flower, but you're still talking about a population. So if you're selecting out of your OG population, let's say, or sour kind of those kinds of things that are later flowering, well, you're probably not, maybe you won't be able to sex the plants until mid-May, but some of these earlier flowering types, you can really sex them early on and, you know, with the population that eventually led into like varieties like our blueberry muffin, other earlier flowering varieties, at a point right around, you know, 2006, 2005, I was like realizing because I had my own experiences and a couple other of the farms that, you know, would give a lot of reports back about how our seeds were performing would actually say, you know, hey, we're having flowering is happening way too early and <laughs> we're not getting as much yield because, you know, so there's this kind of perfect balance that we end up striving for when it comes to flowering time and and particularly, you know, for those that are growing, uh, in, you know, in the natural photo period you know the just growing in in full sun without light deprivation and things like that and so but back to why we have more quicker flowers flowering types than than you know maybe some others have to offer i think over the years that was something that we kind of learned to balance and really hone in on you know what because i think everybody does enjoy kind of having a quicker flowering type of cannabis because you know sometimes especially with things like the hazes and certain gosh certain land race rivals i mean we've a lot of growers that have grown a lot of different varieties have had that plant that you're, you know, showing your friends at Thanksgiving, you know, it comes, <laughs> you know, this thing is like 15 feet tall. It's just starting <laughs> to flower. It's Thanksgiving. You know, I don't know. I'm going to be harvesting this thing next year, literally. <laughs> and, uh, but so some things you'll, you're never going to make to keep the, the strain true to form, you know, you, you can't change too much about the flowering time, but you can certainly shorten it by a few weeks, I think, in my experience. And, you know, that could be said for, for a lot of things like the classics, like, um, sour diesel that tend to be a little on the longer side for flowering. You can still, you know, keep something that is recognizably, sour diesel with turpins and structure and the high and maybe cut off a, a couple weeks which is you know that's so that's a that's that's breeding right there i mean you know that's that's improving something that you know without i don't feel like you know you're not 
jeopardizing too much by doing that. You're really just selecting within a population. And, and, you know, everybody's always grateful for that, too, because the shorter the bloom cycle, the less time there is for something to go wrong, right? I mean, like, one of the challenges with these long—I mean, where I live on Vashon Island in the Pacific Northwest, anything over eight weeks is we consider long. But, you know, you've got somebody who's got a 12-weeker. It's like, oh, my gosh, you've got so much time to run into potential pest problems that you're going to have to solve during flower when your options are very limited— um, it's, you know, it's, if, if you can knock a couple of weeks off of a long bloom cycle, it's, it's to everybody's benefit. So long as the flower, you know, still, still comes out being the haze or whatever that you're hoping it is. Now, now you were talking about the, your flowers that started blooming early. Does that for you pretty much equate with ending early too? Because, you know, you might have something that, that might start flowering early, but then it still doesn't finish until the second or third week of October, which is really at the, at the end of, of reasonable for most of the country. It's really nice. If not only if, if that, if it starts flowering earlier than it, than others, but then it also drags that finishing time forward to the end of September too. Do you find normally that, that when you're doing these large sifts that the ones that are starting early are also finishing early? Yeah. And for the most part, I'd say that that is the case. So you know, you're moving the, you're really just the flower time. It's not completely static. I mean, it is a little bit dynamic and certain varieties, I, I'm sure folks have seen it. You know, you basically flip the lights to 12-12 and next thing you know. Off they go. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, within a, a few days you're noticing the difference and um, and then next thing you know, you've got significant flowers put on, which is, I think that's really what the goal is, is to get that, you know, initial chunk, uh, to start early enough. And so when you're working in uh, indoors, it's a little bit easier to kind of see the difference between that because when you're doing outdoor, of course, if, if you're, let's say up in Washington, uh, you know, the lights changing and certain varieties will, you know, trigger into flower earlier than others. And that's just, you're essentially taking the flowering cycle and moving it up a few weeks. And then of course the end gets moved up a few weeks as well. So I mean that, and that is effective for that uh, goal. If you, if you really want to avoid the problems that are associated with having, you know, big, beautiful flowers out in the rain or the freezing cold, then that's completely effective for that. But I think that there's another factor that we're also considering, which is just how fast the flowers actually grow and how, you know, how much of the plant's energy is strictly just getting devoted to putting on flower weight versus continuing to put energy into stalk and leaf growth. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the time I do associate those earlier flowering ones, you know, they kind of go all in 
on flowering too, which is, I know we're going to talk about autos in a little while, but that, you know, for me, I see, I think of it as kind of the difference between annual and perennial plants and where the, the plant really is putting its energy at the time. And for me, uh, you know, I think of it as being a, a fish biologist for, for years while I was also breeding and running the company when I, when I couldn't be as big of a company, um, I got to really know and understand salmon and steelhead. And an interesting thing about uh, salmon and steelhead is that steelhead can live after they reproduce. So they can spawn a number of times. Whereas salmon just kind of, you know, they have to expend all of their energy into reproduction, into swimming up the river, they pretty much stop eating and then they reproduce. But from a person that, you know, also likes to fish and, and eat salmon and steelhead, I can tell you right now that the best, I think I really enjoy the taste of the salmon because you're having a, this is a creature that knows that it has to put a whole bunch of energy into this one special moment. And, when you harvest it, uh, if it's at the right moment, then you're essentially, you know, that energy is kind of transferring over. And I think of that with, with cannabis and some of these shorter flowering varieties are kind of like salmon where they're just like, okay, we know that this is the, the time to go for it. And we're going to throw everything we have into basically, you know, what they're trying to do, which is reproduce. And, um, we're getting in there and, and harvesting it at this moment where the plant is just full of of ever you know all life and and vibrant and uh, you know big chunky beautiful buds. <laughs> I think that that interpretation of it is really you know poetic if not spiritual because you know you're you're talking about all life having this particular moment when it when it gives its full expression of who it is in the natural system and it and it puts it all on and you're right some of these shorter blooming flowers um when they come on they come on like gangbusters and i think that's one of the things that those of us who have the opportunity to walk through gardens with you know, many plants, let's, you know, you can do it with, you know, five or six plants, but let's, let's say 25 plants when you can walk through and all these plants are expressing themselves fully and, and we're looking at them and we're smelling them and we're both the plants and us are reacting to the sun. I think that we can feel that energy that's going between the sun and the plants and us. And I think that's one of the reasons that we are so in love with this plant is because we can we can participate in that at an energetic level. Exactly. And yeah, and it's, it's okay. I mean, we're, we're all creatures and we all, you know, give and take from all the different kind of life forces on the planet. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an omnivore. I, I love going out and harvesting broccoli out of the garden and, fishing and and all those things and it's you do you kind of when you are 
harvesting something and especially if you've put a bunch of energy into it, whether that's, you know, growing tomatoes in your garden or growing cannabis or, you know, taking care of the wild world that you live in. Um, when you're harvesting something like that and you have that real connection with it, it's such a thing of beauty to, you know, be so proud and hold that thing in your hand and then, you know, go, have a stir fryer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, have to, I feel like that. It's a real. It is. It's it's super spiritual. I totally agree. So um, before we go to commercial, because we're we're a little over, but I want to make sure that we hit on something because we've certainly talked about you know how you moved toward growing these short blooming types, um, and it ended up being kind of like just systemically, you just started getting shorter ones because of how you worked your sifts, which is really interesting. And then we've talked about like the, you know, the, the energetic expression of these plants, but there's also people who are listening who are like meticulous breeders who are looking for some kind of guidance from you of, of how to do the selection. So before we, you know, since second set, we're going to be talking more about autoflowers. I want to make sure that we get this in here. Um, so would you explain to us a little more like on the brass tacks, like operational level, when you are doing your SIFs, how are you specifically selecting for um, short bloom cycles and uh, making sure that you concentrate on those? Sure. Well, you know, so I think I explained initially there was some inadvertent uh, sifts that happened in the spring where we were prioritizing breeding. And so choosing first the, the plants that showed out of that group, we'd choose the best ones and, you know, then set them aside. So that led to all of a sudden now, if we do that every single season, every, every time we're breeding, then holy cow, we can actually make things almost flower too early, too <laughs> quick. And, and that was problematic in like 2005, 2006, right around that time. It, it it dawned on me that look we I have a bunch of we're controlling this and so now let's control for exactly what farmers want which you know maybe that's uh, a fuel type that normally would flower in mid to late October let's see if we can get it to flower and finish you know in in mid mid to early October and. That actually really was easier than I ever thought. And so basically what we were doing was just initially seeing which ones happened to, to show first. And then of that population, putting that through the other rigorous selection that we would normally do to make sure that it had the you know phenotypic expressions, the type of turpins that we're looking for and and then eventually you know testing for cannabinoids and all the the more detailed stuff that we have the capability to do now but you know gosh this has been a 20-year process and 
it's incredible what we can do now with the, you know, genomic stuff and, and even just simple like lab stuff that we can utilize. But back then and, and something that's still, no matter how fancy the equipment that you have access to, I wholeheartedly believe that 90% of, of any breeders work should be basically phenotypic selection and, or, you know, and the personal experience of smoking and, and all just stuff that you don't really need that expensive lab equipment for. And that's something that kind of equalizes this industry, which, you know, now we've got folks coming in that have all the money in the world to spend on all that lab equipment. And it's boy, um, thank gosh that you really need to know the plant to be able to do proper cannabis breeding and, the more time and energy that you've spent with the plant, the more that you understand how malleable and how to, to, you know, form that, uh, in, in a direction that you want, like, let's say a quicker flowering type plant. Um, the more years that you've got under your belt, the, the better that, the, the easier that'll be for you. But for folks that really want to try that, I, it's, it's a couple things, you know, early on, you can really be effective by just doing selection and noting which ones do show sex earliest. That is more powerful than anyone would probably expect. And it was something that dawned on us years ago. We almost did too much of that. We kind of reversed it. And now we've learned how to control it. And then, of course, the next thing is just you know, looking at flowering, if the cool thing is, is you can do it real time. You can say, you know, this plant is flowering now. I can see that it's going to finish up early. I can see that it's probably going to avoid, you know, the weather I know that's coming in late October. And this is the one that I'm going to select to pollinate. But just, you know, make sure that you're not compromising what you, you know, you the most important thing I think is the varietal that you're going after and those traits, the turpins and the, the structure. Um, if you like beautiful buds, which I love, you know, frosty trichome coated buds. Uh, that's an, another important factor, obviously not to ignore, but, um, you know, sometimes those things aren't necessarily exactly related. Like the frostiest buds, are not always the ones that test highest for THC or whatever. So, you know, I think those, those are all important things, but essentially you can, you can change things. And I think as we go into this autoflower discussion next, um, I'm holding back on a few <laughs> others that <laughs> I think are relevant to that too, because that's, an, uh, obviously those are, um, you know, I don't even want to say early, but it's, it's a whole different animal. But there are what we call heterozygotes, which is sort of comp combinations of both of those characteristics that pop up. And there are ways to 
take traits that you like in in a photo period type and transpose them onto the auto type or or have a heterozygote which sometimes lands right in the middle so so then let's let's leave that there as a nice little tasty bit to encourage people to come back for a second set and go ahead and take our first short break you're listening to shaping fire and my guest today is nat pennington founder of humboldt seed company One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamyco by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamyco is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynamyco to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram, at Dynamyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamyco at dynamyco.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant. Living soil and regenerative cannabis agriculture are surging in popularity, and to implement these biological solutions, real science education is vital. If you are interested in all things probiotic growing, you will probably want to attend this year's Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference. For the third year in a row, co-founders Joshua Rutherford of Dutch Blooms and Leighton Morrison of Kingdom Aquaponics have lined up an incredible array of educators with all new content for the traveling event. They're calling it version 2.0, going deeper down the rabbit hole. This year's teaching staff includes Elaine Ingham on soil biology, Chris Trump and Wendy Kornberg talking Korean natural farming, Kevin Jodry on cannabis genetics, Kelly and Josh from Dragonfly Earth Medicine, Suzanne Wainwright, the bug lady, Chip Osborne on soil chemistry, and many other thought leaders rotating in and out for different cities. So consult the website to know who specifically is coming for each location. There will be a breeding panel, a Q&A panel with the entire teaching staff, and on Saturday night, there will be a bubble hash discussion as well. Joshua has built in significant informal time for you with the teachers. The teaching staff is just as excited to work with you as you are about attending. There is also no advertising during the event. The only vendor booths are for cannabis seed breeders. Your tuition is what's paying the staff, so they'll all be present and attentive to you, not a corporate sponsor. 
Even better, the conference is not just for folks on the West Coast. Humboldt, California is hosting one event for sure, but the show is going on the road to Vancouver, British Columbia, Portland, Maine, and Whitmore Lake, Michigan. Get out your pen now because I'm about to give you the website. This is a fabulous opportunity for you to hear from an array of nationally recognized top shelf soil educators all in one place. Not only that, this isn't just beginner stuff like you get at most conventions. This is an intensive for people like us who totally nerd out on the rhizosphere and growing and living soil. And if you attended last year, be assured that this year is not simply a repeat of last year. Every speaker will present different material than they did last year. The website is regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. That's regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. This year, tickets will be limited in number to preserve the intimate experience and will only be sold in advance online. There will be no ticket sales at the door. So don't wait and miss out on your chance to attend this important gathering of the regenerative cannabis community. Cut through all the misinformation out there and don't miss this opportunity to learn real soil science. RegenerativeOrganicCannabis.com This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up, smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Genex last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is Nat Pennington, founder of Humboldt Seed Company. So during the first set, we were talking about short, blooming, regular uh, seed varieties. And for a lot of people who are interested in short, blooming cycles, uh, people are, those same folks have been getting more and more interested in autoflowers because they meet a lot of the same needs for you know patients and home growers and uh, commercial growers who all really need uh, to get done and out before uh, before the bad weather starts. 
Well, um, today, there's the second set here, we're going to talk about autoflowers. So, so Nat, you know, I know that you have got uh, two autoflowers in your catalog this year, which tells me you've probably been messing with them for a few years. Um, and, you know, a lot autos get a lot of flack from growers who like big cannabis trees. And these are a lot of the people who respect you and, and have liked the cultivars that you've brought to market. And I'm a pretty public proponent for autoflowers for people with certain needs. You know, what has been your motivation to go ahead and explore autoflowers when you're, when you're, you know, when you've been serving these other folks who like big trees for so long? <laughs> well, I, I do have to say that I love big trees and that's been sort of the classic uh, Emerald Triangle or even like the kind of the whole Northwest, totally. and, you know, we've been growing trees for a long time and gosh, back in the days when it was, you know, we had sort of these quasi guidance from, from the, you know, the state or whatever, the police that, you know, you could do 99 plants or whatever it was. We, it would be like just a, personal challenge <laughs> like 99 trees make them as big as possible yep and you like would look at google earth and you'd be like now is that a almond orchard or a cannabis <laughs> i can't really even tell but um yeah so you know i i miss those trees because these days it's there's not a much motivation to do things that way there you have these you know rules basically you've got square footage and uh you can have as many plants as you want inside of that square footage so sometimes production does increase when you know you're doing things that way so um autos I think in a lot of respects just completely changed the whole paradigm and why did we start breeding them? Well, I think, you know, my top answer would be basically it was curiosity that, that drove me to start playing around with autos. And I've learned that, you know, even though Humboldt is obviously world renowned for growing great, great cannabis, that, uh, if we just think that we're doing it perfectly well and we don't have anything to, you know, that that we could be learning from others, then that's, you know, not going to do us any favor. So, you know, got some autoflower seeds, gave them a try, wasn't initially, you know, thrilled. Like, I, and I, that is the general, sometimes the, the preconception or the stereotype around them. And so, you know, look, it was a challenge to say, Hey, let's maybe see what we can do and, and see if we can change it. And, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, I've always been really amazed at how malleable the species is and how, you know, much of our own influence we can have on, the evolution of the plants and things like that, how, how they change for us and with us. So yeah, autos, it's really, it's unbelievable 
just with our own breeding projects and looking at quite a few different auto cultivars, making crosses and then making selections, you know, it, it only took two or three years before I was, I think last year was when we came out with our first, you know, fully endorsed auto line that was in our catalog and available, uh, for folks wherever, but you know, maybe the year before that I, we were kind of test running some locally with friends in the community and things like that. But, you know, last year people were happy and this year we were able to refine that, you know, during last year's breeding process. And now we've got two varietals that were really, really endorsing and, you know, putting out there. And then we made a bunch of seeds and the test results weren't exactly what we were, you know, what we were thrilled with, but those are available for folks who might want to do, you know, uh, I think it's, that's kind of like a big field that would just be for uh biomass or something like that. So, um, yeah. So I think, um, there's a ton of potential with autoflower. And I think that, that we're going to be able to make that way more conducive to um, what people expect from cannabis these days. So, you know, the, the thing a lot of people go for the autoflowers, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about October weather and how much it sucks at this point. Um, and one of the things people love about them is that you can, you know, start them earlier in, you know, May or June and be done by August or the beginning of September. And they, they finish when it's bright and sunny out and they've got these kick-ass terpene profiles. And, um, you know, it's interesting to experience it from the grower side, but I'm assuming that there have there are some breeding intricacies that you have to be aware of when breeding the autoflowers that you don't have to be aware of when you're breeding uh, regular seeds. Will you shine some light on that? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things was that, uh, I mean, a lot of people that don't have a ton of experience with autos are just like, don't realize that you cannot make clones. So you like our whole breeding process where we do phenotype hunting and, um, you know, take clones of thousands. I mean, last year in 2018, we literally looked over 10,000, uh, plants in this collaborative phenotype hunt effort and were able to take cuttings off of every single one of them while they were, you know, still in vegetative form, preserve them and mark them from the field to the clone tray. And it was a huge effort. Um, I'm, we may do it again this year. We, we actually only ended up doing 2,500, but <laughs> You know, that's still really significant, and I feel like we kind of were able to focus even more on those. Um, so we did kind of the same result from a little bit of a smaller batch. But you can't do that with autos. So when you're breeding auto, because they'll just, there's no veg. There, or there is veg, but there's no taking a clone and keeping 
that strain in veg so that you can, you know, have it kind of permanently, you know, you couldn't put an auto flower into tissue culture, for example, because it would, you know, flower inside the tissue culture and it could be ridiculous. So there's a whole bunch of different breeding constraints, but, you know, you can also cycle through breeding uh, generations quick, very quickly because, you know, you've only got three months, you only have to wait three months before you might have um, your next generation and, and you may have made significant improvement in that period of time. Um, so we look at it differently. We're, we're really doing more of kind of this traditional breeding that people have done for years with things like, you know, corn and Mendel's pea plants. And it's neat because you can utilize a lot of those, uh, methodologies and not kind of confuse yourself with the, you know, keeping things clonally and breeding with them. But I do have to say there are advantages to being able to select one clone out of 10,000 plants and then breed with that. I mean, without a doubt, that gives you a huge advantage and allows you to progress really quickly in developing the trait expressions that you are looking for. So, you know, will we get autos that are comparable or, you know, maybe even superior to photo period type varieties? I think so. And I, I think in a lot of ways, the advantages that you get of having a quicker turnover potentially um, might almost equal out with the the disadvantages of not being able to choose but it may take a little while before we're able to make things that are quite as uniform uh, in their very specific expressions so you know if you've got a field of a few thousand autoflowers and you're pollinating and you're going out there and now you're choosing the very best one out of that field uh, you're not able to take a clone of it and keep that and then you know put like basically cross either self it or cross into it and and create like a really stable homozygous line for those specific traits but you know you can actually have a big field like that and you can hone in on one plant and then if you are pollinating you can select the seeds from that plant and then you've got at least a population that you 100% know you know is likely to display that trait that you're you know the the attractive trait that you were after maybe you know at least 25% of the time and then if you back cross it again, you're going to get 50 and so on and so forth. So, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's interesting too, to hear you talk about, you know, the traits that you're trying to lock down because 
you know, a lot of folks complain about autos that there is so much variety. I mean, actually, I mean, people complain about a lot of things, right? Number one, that there's smaller plants. Number two, that there's, you know, more phenotypic variety. Number three, that maybe they don't have the same <clears throat> uh, quality terpene profiles as some reg seeds. And it's interesting if it, that those complaints don't apply to all autoflower seeds, but they certainly apply to many, if not most, because we're still in the early days of autoflowers, and they're 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 very useful for particular types of patients and for for particular home growers and for particular commercial folk. But they're 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 not for everybody, nor are they designed that way. But here's my question for you: You know, one of the things I I like about you is that you don't just have all of your staff in the front of your booth selling seeds. You are there yourself and you're talking to your customers and you are, you're, you're explaining them how the seeds are going to work best for their life. So you've spent, uh, you know, some shows now selling these autoflower seeds. What is the response that you are seeing from people who are looking for autoflower solutions? Do you think that enough people know about them now that as somebody who makes seeds and puts them out to the people, that people are coming to you and going, hell yeah, autoflowers? Are you seeing that yet? Or is this mostly just heads still? Uh, you know, I'd say it's a little bit of a mix. Basically, we're seeing folks that a lot of it is folks that are uh, – you know, looking to do it in industrial type cannabis agriculture in California. And, you know, it's, I think that it's going to change things a lot the way that, that autos allow plants. One of the really things I think is really positive about it is I think it does have the capability of reducing the environmental impact. And, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't believe that cannabis has very much of an environmental impact because, you know, compared to the big ag that we have in the Central Valley is, uh, you know, a lot. I mean, it's gotten this kind of misplaced uh, stereotype as in especially here in Humboldt for some reason. And, and I w have been a part of the Humboldt's environmental movement my entire adult life and can honestly say that there has been a major impacts that, you know, pre-cannabis that are still, you know, not healed up. But I'm always looking for ways to lessen impact. And I think autoflower is, is a good way to do that. Um, particularly in places like the Central Valley where there actually is a major shortage of water and we do have um, wildlife that's suffering and teetering on the brink of extinction. So that's a really good outcome of, of autoflower types. I think for the hobbyist grower that people – have more of an opportunity to be able to grow cannabis because we're bringing this autoflower trait into the mix because, you know, you can put it in a small pot, even if you live in an apartment and if you have a balcony, 
and actually still harvest your own cannabis, which I love. I mean, as much as we're a company that does service, uh, you know, this growing industry, which I still, um, you know, think of it as a community, but, uh, there's no doubt that, that there is an industry that's developing and, you know, we do service that, but what I really enjoy most about what we do is interacting with small farms and hobbyists and, you know, like grow your own kind of people. And we have quite a few people that are, that are experimenting with autos and, and having, you know, really good experience just in their backyard, even in the coastal climates in Humboldt, it, it's a totally different story because, you know, there actually are, there is a, a period of time here in Humboldt on the coast where Humboldt's famous for cannabis, but that's like the inland is where that has always come from. But we have this fog layer and in the urban area of Humboldt, which is like really where most of the population is, uh, it's not the greatest place to grow cannabis because we get fog every day. That's why we have redwood trees and things like that. And, uh, but people, you know, it's Humboldt. So people still love cannabis. So they're here, you know, growing it. And we, we love that we can now offer them something that they can harvest in late July or early August when Humboldt is actually at its sunniest and they have a great experience with it, which is what we want. We want folks to have a, a good experience and, and even indoor too, you know, you can leave your lights on 24 hours if you want and our autoflowers will still flower and you'll still get bud. And so while, you know, you're still kind of using a similar amount of electricity, you know, maybe you're using a little less water and you're not taking up so much space for so long and you're probably kind of increasing the amount of flour that you're getting for that electricity that you're putting in. So, yeah, I think it is advantageous in a lot of ways. And, and, you, that, and using that particular example about the, the having the lights on, you know, whether it be 16, 18, or 24 hours, um, one of the pieces of feedback I get back from people all the time are like, oh, it just turned my bedroom into a room that yields flour. They're like, I had all this extra room in my bedroom, and, and now people can actually run autos there. And um, Certainly, that helps with resources more than more than anything. It's a huge advantage to the grower. Yeah, and you know you're planting from seed every time, which uh, you know that alleviates the need to have you know a whole nother space to keep moms alive. Or also, it alleviates the need to bring genetics to and from too. I mean, you know. Oh, people always say cannabis has been sprayed with a lot of pesticides. Well, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I mean, I know for a fact that the standards that we're held to here now in California and in most legal, um, you know, with licenses and all that stuff, 
you literally there's no other agricultural crop in the world that is as clean as what we produce because it goes through the most rigorous testing in the world they have baby formula that isn't as pure as our cannabis but anyway um you know growing from seed not having to when when there were problems with pests it was just basically because you know essentially somebody found a good cut they shared it with their neighbor and their neighbor shared it with uh the other person and and so on and so forth and and undoubtedly one of those people might have had a infestation some bugs and and then those bugs hitched a ride over to the other place and so on and so forth and so that was like how we spread pests and pathogens historically in the cannabis industry and you know of course some people were willing to compromise their maybe their morals or maybe they didn't have the greatest one morals they spray these really nasty things on it and so because autoflowers there's really no you're not never gonna or you're much less likely to take a plant from one grow to another grow you're just more likely you're just gonna sprout some seeds right inside your grow then that's there's all the much less likelihood of getting something from another you know, passing around these pests and pathogens. So I actually really like that. You know, I've been, I've been talking about autos for, I know, better part of a year now, maybe a little more than a year talking to people about it, pushing them. And I had never really considered that they're more hygienic because we're not moving our cuts around as much because they're all from seed. That's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we were starting to talk about cannabis and the species, how it's a, a malleable species and, you know, I sometimes don't love the terminology of, of um, plant breeding and, and biotech terminology, but what you say is that you're improving, you know, this is an improved varietal over what it was before. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I love land races. I think we have to preserve seeds. We can't let these classic and original cannabis varietals disappear that's why we keep like a really really robust seed bank here in humble and there should be that kind of an effort everywhere but you know we are basically still improving things for what what it is that we want to see and if a, a plant that just flowers no matter what you do uh if and that starts flowering a month after you sprout the seed and then lo and behold the flowers are just about finished after 90 days from sprout to finish or even shorter sometimes and if that is something that really gives certain advantages like the ones that we just discussed i mean they might be good for just getting more weed they might be good for the environment they might save money and energy or Maybe they're cleaner. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And particularly, you know, I'm not talking about going in and splicing genes or even um, editing them with CRISPR or something like that. I'm just talking about real traditional breeding practices where basically, I mean, that's how we got all of the 
food just about that we enjoy today for like the things that we grow at least. And, you know, that's going to happen. And I think it's, it's a lot of fun to be a part of that plant, you know, and seed Im- improvement. And with autos, I've, it's, it's crazy how I've just been able to see, you know, taking an auto flower and crossing it with, you know, like a strain we did last year. We have this vanilla frosting strain and it's a higher THC one and it's got this beautiful smell and, you know, really attractive strain. And, you know, we're moving that towards being an auto flower strain just by crossing it with similar types of autos and it's happening quicker than I ever expected. So, you know, it won't be long before we're able to say, look, here's this auto flowering version of, uh, strains that we've all come to know and love. And it shouldn't really, there's, there's nothing that says that it has to compromise the things that we've come to love about those strains. You know, it doesn't, like for a blueberry muffin, we're also working on a blueberry muffin auto. And it has this, you know, it's a strain that we created in 2008 or way back. And it really smells just like blueberry muffins. And it's got pretty purple color and, you know, a lot of really nice traits about it. And And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to make that so that, you know, someone could get some seeds and plant them in um, do it on on their balcony early in the year mid-may and then next thing they've got they just you know plant it on their balcony and they can use the little railing as a trellis and then have their friends over and show them the plant it's a lot of fun harvest and and then they've got something that they've you know created themselves and I think everybody kind of, you know, enjoys that more. Like I've always had kids around in my life and, you know, kids, it's hard to get them to eat their vegetables. Right. (laughs) And so we'd, I, we'd always have a garden and I always found that if you get the kid out there and they're the ones that planted the cauliflower or even worse, the Brussels sprouts and, you know, now it's, harvest time and you get them out there and they get to be the one that harvests it and everything. Boy, do they love Brussels sprouts when they, <laughs> and you know, I think that's, it's funny because when we first started, you know, really having a decent distribution for the seed company here, um, you know, I would be really critical of myself and, and of our genetics. And we like, I've always been right here in Humboldt County and I always felt like, oh man, of all the places to, you know, if someone's going to think, you know, know that these seeds aren't good or for whatever reason, it's going to be Humboldtians because <laughs> they they know what to expect and what maybe didn't work out or whatever, they're going to tell you. So. So, so when breeding these autoflowers, you know, one of the odd things about it is that you you need to take your your cultivar that you that you're you know you want to emulate, if you will, and and you're more usually just crossing into a ruderalis so that you can get that autoflower tendency. But then, 
a lot of people are concerned about the the taste of the ruderalis, which is, you know, not usually awesome. Um, really tamping down the flavor of the of the you know, cultivar that you're, you're trying to make auto. Have you found that to be like, especially challenging or is it like, ah, nah, you just take some time and effort. Well, I think that that is a really good point. And I, but I think that it's a little bit outdated and there's nothing wrong with that. So if people are listening out there, they're like, that's what I think. I'm like, look, I totally get it. But since we were working with just like low rider, some of these original autoflower genetics that are really clearly, you know, kind of a subspecies of cannabis. Cause people always say there's like ruderalis and there's sativa and indica. And I think we all know that there's a lot more to it than just that. But, um, if that is the defining characteristic of ruderalis, then, to me, that is just the defining characteristic. And I've seen firsthand that you can completely and totally isolate that one trait, which is I'm going to flower literally a month after I germinate and I'm going to start going towards flowering and, and I'll be done in three months rather than whenever, you know, two months after the light changes to 1212 or the photo period type. Uh, so I, I do believe that really that is a, a trait that you can absolutely isolate and you don't necessarily need to bring some of the more negative connotations to ruderalis along with that. So, but that involves a lot of selective breeding and, you know, essentially, if you cross a complete ruderalis with a blueberry muffin, then you're going to have a whole bunch of progeny. And some of them are not going to be ruderalis or autoflower type. Some of them are not going to be, they will be, but they won't be blueberry muffin at all. They'll be more, you know, what you started with the autoflower look, which, you know, stereotypic description might be larfy or i mean that's like the humble word but loose loose flowers and you know not very crystally and just not dank (laughs) (laughs) so you know you don't necessarily then what you're going to do is like you may only have 15 percent or even only like five percent that really captured they that you just carried that one characteristic, which was the three months start to finish, and then took on and carried the characteristics that you do appreciate about blueberry muffin. And obviously that'll be the one that you'll do your breeding with. Or, you know, it's autoflower, so you don't have a cl- you can't do the clone breeding, so you've hopefully that one has seeds in it already. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully the the pollinator that you chose had also had those characteristics but it's it's a you know that's that's where you can probably get there's a lot of advantages to molecular marker assisted breeding which 
I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, but you know, you can, you can, and we do, and we have done that just through selective breeding, traditional breeding practices and, and looking at, at the plants phenotypic expression. Um, but I mean, the advantage is that we've essentially devoted all of our farms to breeding and selections and we've got these isolated areas where we do have the pollen that we you know assume or best guess pollen is in the air and so when we're going and doing selection and looking through these populations that that are have received seeds then we are able to be you know to deem this one the best expression, the one that captured the most uh, ideal traits of of the set of traits that we're working with. And it's got to be such a relief to get there after all that extra work. Um, so I want to talk more about, actually, you hit on a whole bunch of stuff, the blueberry, muffin, the, um, the genetic markers, and tissue culture. I want to talk about all that more, but let's do it after this next set break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Nat Pennington, founder of Humboldt Seed Company. Cultivators who grow in living soil are very particular on what inputs they use in their soil. They educate themselves and painstakingly create compost and nutritive teas to create thriving soils that will produce the very best expression of the cannabis plant. Many living soil farmers now believe that, over time, seeds become acclimated to the kind of substrate they are grown in. For example, a seed that was bred in synthetic fertilizers may not immediately know what to do in a living soil environment, slowing their growth and decreasing yield. The Regenerative Seed Cooperative is a different kind of seed bank. The Regenerative Seed Cooperative only provide cannabis seeds that were bred in living soil and using probiotic growing techniques. That way, when you germinate in soil, the seed's genetics will recognize the environment and immediately start interacting with microbes and fungal networks. These seeds are described as bio-intelligent. The number of cannabis breeders participating in the Regenerative Seed Cooperative is rapidly increasing. Already signed on are Bamboos, Stock and Bean, Pacific Northwest Roots, LOS Gardens, Dragonfly Earth Medicine, ITAL Foundation, Bob Hemphill's Cricket and Cicada, Dutch Blooms, Heart Rock Mountain Farms Pride of Lion, Sebring Seeds, and Mount Baker Highway, with more being added every month. These seeds are regulars, autoflowers, and hemp varieties. A significant amount of the profits go to cannabis seed preservation projects available to everyone. Do you want to take every advantage that you can when growing in beautiful, healthy soil? Then consider buying your seeds from the Regenerative Seed Cooperative at regenerativeseeds.com. That's regenerativeseeds.com. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. 
Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit greenhouseadvisorygroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and my guest this week is Nat Pennington, founder of Humboldt Seed Company. So Nat, I'm really glad that we finally got to this part of the show where we can talk about the blueberry muffin cultivar more because holy hell, man, it is crazy how exactly it smells and tastes just like that Jiffy blueberry muffin mix in the blue box. When I first smelled it at Moontime Medicinals in Garberville, it was like a time machine back to my mom's kitchen as a kid. What was your reaction when you smelled that very unique terpene profile for the first time in your sift? Yeah, so the way that that happened was really interesting because it it wasn't me or really anybody who was totally in the company that that pointed that out. It was just a trimmer that we had and you know, it wasn't somebody that that we're really close with, but we, we had been working on this cross and this was really the first year that we grew it out with, you know, looking through 20 or so different plants. And 
one of them did come out just amazing. And we had all kind of had our eye on that plan. And we were, that's a special one right there. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, late September night, the plant was done earlier than a lot of the rest of them. And we're up there in the field and we're harvesting and he's right across on the other side of the plant and he just harvests a big old cola and says, man, I can't believe this smells exactly like a blueberry muffin. You know that blueberry muffin mix? And I said, no kidding. You're absolutely right. And you just named that strain. And we always had a, uh, like an ongoing strain naming little thing within our, our group where, you know, you get like prizes and things like that if, if you end up naming a strain. So he got the prize for the year and <laughs> that was that. But, um, you know, I knew that, 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 you know, it was born and fortunately we did have clones of it cause that's something we've been doing for a long time. We always started taking clones maybe in, you know, early 2000, mid 2000s of every plant that we'd put up in our field and we were growing these trees. So it wasn't like that much to keep track of. It was manageable. Um, and we got to see the full expression of them. So it was worth the effort, but the blueberry muffin, then, you know, we just back cross and back cross into it. And I think it was like 2010 that we were finally able to, you know, feel confident that the seeds should carry that expression of the the blueberry muffin kind of jiffy mix thing and i don't always say jiffy mix but you called it and i don't know if we've ever even talked about it before but well it, it's blatant you can't yeah. like you can't not know like, like if you have any experience with that and I, and i dare call it cheap right like that cheap blueberry muffin smell because the boxes are only like you know whatever a dollar a box to get this muffin mix and 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 that's the odd thing is like yeah we we there are smells of blueberry in you know across lots of phenos, right? Or not even more than phenos, whole cultivars. But this very particular version of the blueberry smells just like that box. And it's and it's unlike anything else. And and everybody who smells a jar of it, that's their first response. Yep, exactly. It people do, you know, note that it's that sort of artificial blueberry muffin <laughs> yeah. smell. And, uh, and I don't, I don't mind because that was what we were really, you know, that was what we were honing in on was the, the Jiffy mix. So you nailed it right there. It's, it's totally, I'm not saying that it smells like organic blueberries put in whole wheat flour muffins baked at home. It no, like no, it's like fucking baked, baked blueberry muffin mix. Totally. It's, it's, it's more of a, uh, a breakfast cereal blueberry versus a organic muffin blueberry, you know? <laughs> exactly right. Look, the, they're pellets. They're not blueberry. Yeah. They're like... <laughs> so, uh, so that's a good story about the trimmer find it and bless their heart. So, you know, um, I have come across two different phenos of it. Um, there is, uh, most of them seem to be like this purplish green color, which is very beautiful. Um, but then the one that I saw in all of these gorgeous Hugel cultures at Moontime Medicinals in Garberville, they happen to have the, the pure purple Fino 
which um, I'm not sure if it was you or your daughter who commented on my Instagram uh, where I posted a picture of this this cola that was like the size of my forearm and the entire thing is purple. There's there's, you know, very little green actually on it. And and the comment that that y'all made was uh, was like, wow, this is this is one of the purple ones. Most of them are green, but they all have got the same smell. How often do you come across that that purple pheno? Because I would think that that's the one that, you know, regardless of the other attributes of the plant, people probably really freaking dig the fact that they've they've got a fully purple plant. Yeah. So, you know, the original ones that we were kind of the the cuts that we've preserved and things like that they've sort of had this purple but not the dark 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 purple but kind of a a mottled flex of of purple and and that is really the target one uh you know one thing that i've noticed is one of the harder things to create complete uniformity in in cannabis is the level of anthocyanin or purple that you get in your flowers and you know that's been somewhat problematic because as we are now breeding for folks who need to put together a big batch of of a specific type and they do want to grow from seed you know having strains that have different levels of purple can be problematic because you know then you might end up with a plant that's a little bit on the darker side or or you know more more green and you know i always kind of caveat with like well that can happen too i don't know if, if you've noticed but i've seen that plants that receive more light can be a different color than the other side of the plant, it's the same plant, but, you know, it has some darker buds on one side, lighter buds on the other. So there's really no uh, way to have complete and total uniformity. And, and that's a good thing, in my opinion. I like that. But, um, you know, I think with Blueberry Muffin, basically we've shot for kind of this, you know, purplish green kind of look to it and that's what we've been going for and hopefully uh most people are are finding that trait well it's it was delightful so so let's talk a little bit about um about tech assisted breeding so because um i know that you have moved into that direction and while you know many of the corporate cannabis companies are using tissue culture you're one of the few authentic california heritage breeders who started to experiment and kind of judge it for its relevance what are your impressions so far of tissue culture and are are you finding it useful or just something to mess with you know i don't know if i want to i don't think that it's i mean it, it does take some setup you have to buy a hood you have to kind of have a laboratory essentially to do tissue culture i don't, I don't know if everybody who's doing it is you know kind of totally corporate or anything like that but um I think that it, it certainly is attractive to uh, investors because it's really, you know, kind of sounds high tech and you figure, oh, that's a really good way of, of um, must be a good way of doing things because, you know, like we talked about before, you hear about pests and you hear about pathogens in the cannabis industry and, and pesticides and pesticide testing. Um, 
whether or not someone really uses pesticides, you know, they can just be growing on some ground that either has an ag operation nearby and even the most minute amount can make you fail a test. And so it is a big deal. So I don't want to say it's not. Um, what we found with doing tissue culture in 2015 and 2016 was, you know, we kind of expected to have a lot of advantages from it. Like, you know, okay, we could build a, a library of, of genetics that we like working with. It would be much easier to keep those genetics kind of alive and well, happy in tissue culture and, and be able to pluck them from the shelf as we decided we wanted to use them for breeding. And, and really that is like one of the most, um, useful applications of tissue culture in my mind in cannabis, because, you know, cannabis is an, an annual crop and it, it's a fast growing crop that in most agriculture would immediately go to like, this is a crop that we're going to propagate with seed. And, you know, we already use clone and that's to deal with often the male female um, was, I think a lot of why that developed so much. Uh, and then of course the uniformity of the, you know, a clone is always going to be as uniform as it can be because it's genetically identical. But, um, tissue culture, you know, I, I think it, it definitely has its place. I, our experience with it was that it would be unbelievably costly to actually use it to propagate. So, you know, if you're kind of a company that's a nursery and you're wanting to sell thousands and thousands of individual plants that are rooted and ready to go, if you were to to actually really pull those directly from tissue culture and then, you know, basically plants that are in tissue culture are very small often. And so you either have to root them while they're in tissue culture or pull them out and then root them, which is really hard because they're, you know, there's like tiny little X plants and um, that's tricky. So it's, it doesn't seem like to me, like it works for mass propagation, but, and, and I think most folks that have gotten into doing it have kind of realized that, but it, it's wonderful for cleaning up individual genetics. And then once you've got the genetic pathogen free and, completely pest free obviously um you're then able to maybe maintain a very clean nursery so if you're you know i kind of tend to think if you're doing tc and then just bringing the plants out of tc and then propagating them in a in a nursery that maybe is partly outdoors or has a lot of ventilation or whatever that you're kind of negating all of the uh <laughs> all of those benefits that you're getting from tissue culture. But, but if you're, you know, cleaning something up, there's been a lot of, of talk and research done recently on something called the hop latent diploid virus, which is AKA otherwise known as dudding. And, uh, you know, like dark heart nursery has, you know, basically developed a cure for that, which I don't, we didn't really have that before, but the, the cure, involves 
putting the plants through tissue culture and and really only taking the apical meristem, which is millimeter, like even smaller piece of plant. And I, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say exactly, but there's a little process that that they put that piece of, of meristem through. And then from there, you know, they've seen using PCR, which is like a genetic, you can pose a question like, is this carrying this pathogen and polymerase chain reaction or PCR will give you an answer yes or no. And they put it, you know, through that test before the process and it, the answer is yes. And then go through apical meristem tissue culture and the process that they add to that. And then the answer is no. So those are things that are amazing that capabilities that tissue culture has. Um, but is it a, a cost-saving way to do propagation? I would have to say probably not. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> That's like, yeah. one of the things I'm noticing uh, throughout our, our chat here today is a lot of this stuff um, – you get into not because you necessarily need it for your breeding because you've been breeding for, you know, you learned breeding old school style, which took a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of listening to the plant and being with the plant in the, in the garden. And now we've got all these new technologies to assist. And, you know, some of them are more helpful than others, but it's your curiosity that has you messing with all of this stuff. So, so I'm going to ask you similarity are similarly, are you starting to experiment with um, a genetic marker-assisted breeding? And like a lot of people confuse it with like GMO, right? Actually genetically modified plants that, that are, you know, been used with CRISPR or something. But that's in incorrect. It's more like an analysis to read the genome. So how are genetic markers helping you to do traditional breeding more successfully? Yeah, so we are doing some genetic marker-assisted breeding and... You know, oh, a bunch of people are <sighs> gasping, yeah, but totally. <laughs> like the the distinction is so important, and and I'll just get out ahead of that right now, hopefully, and say that you know Humboldt Seed Company is very, uh, we're actually scared that that there is so much biotech interest in this precious plant that. You know, we feel like it has this wonderful, amazing cultural significance in humanity. We've evolved with it. It's so important. And I know for a fact that folks are out there doing both genetic engineering and genetic modification. And genetic engineering is CRISPR, which you mentioned before, where you can just, you know, you just change the code of a plant. You can, like, knock out cannabinoids for example you could say ah i don't want any cbd in this plant i'm taking that code out or um add code even but genetic modification more like bringing dna from another species and splicing it in and both of them essentially that's engineered cannabis or modified cannabis and we at Humboldt Seed Company, 100% support, or we're actually pushing right now for legislation in California to 
have mandatory labeling for any cannabis that is modified or engineered. And we feel like this is incredibly urgent. Um, we're trying to get support from people and I'll caveat that with, we're not like coming out and saying that we think that it should be banned. I mean, even if we did, I don't think that that's something that is likely because we've seen what's happened with food crops and we've seen what's happened with, uh, even animals now. It, it hasn't gotten a lot of traction because there's certain things that, that genetic engineering and modification can actually, it could save lives. It could, you know, that's another argument. I don't want to get into it, but what we're saying is that we want cannabis to be mandatory to have it labeled. And especially when that comes to genetics, because what we see coming is these cultivars getting out into the breeding community. Cannabis is different than any other plant in the world. I would venture to say people fucking love breeding cannabis. They love smoking it. They're more interested in cannabis than, I mean, think about it. Like what, other plants are there. I mean, I know there's a bunch of people that are really into breeding dahlias. I know that all kinds of species are, there's a community around them. It's but still, this is it a, still pales to cannabis. It pales. It totally pales. So this is really important. Like let's, we, I think we've lost that opportunity with our food because I don't know if you're aware, like Mendocino a few years back did get a county ordinance through that banned GMO and, but you know, there was no way to enforce it. Like you go to Chevron in, in Laytonville and it's all GMO. <laughs> so there, it, it wasn't an enforceable or a realistic thing as much as what we're trying to do right now, which is just simply say, look, Cannabis is something that hasn't really been engineered or modified. So before it just gets completely, you know, away from us and we couldn't ever keep track, let's just say, you know, we're not going to stop big biotech from doing what they're doing. We don't even know whether we're opposed to it or not, or maybe we'll participate it sometime down the road. Like I'm not saying that I have either, you know, I don't ever want to see it happen. I'll never participate or I, I love it. I'm working on it right now. I mean, we're not, but, but I do think that it deserves that we deserve and that this community deserves to know what is and what is not genetically engineered or modified. Right on. Now, back to what you asked me about. So the, <laughs> gen genomic marker assisted breeding is a different thing entirely. And that just means – so basically like I did a bunch of studies on salmon when you know, I still am a big part of these environmental groups. But in Humboldt, we were battling to remove the, the Klamath Dam and save the salmon runs. And one of the things that became really evident to me was we were losing a specific type of salmon called the Spring Run Chinook. And – because there were no, there was no um, data on how different those spring run fish were from the fall run fish, that 
they were not protected at all. So they could actually slip into extinction without ever receiving an endangered species listing or any of those things. No protection, no management at all. So I said, look, I had to change this. I wrote a grant, got funded, found some some students and some you know people that were getting their PhD at Humboldt State and at Davis, kind of tailored the grant for that work. And we started doing genomic studies on the salmon. And lo and behold, there actually were specific differences between those fish that you could find with something like PCR, which I mentioned before. It's basically a, it's kind of like Ancestry.com if you were to say, you know. <laughs> it is totally like Ancestry.com for plants. It is, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, no one's out there like, you know, you submit some, you know, a swab of your cheek cell or whatever to Ancestry.com and, and no one's saying, oh, you're, you know, you're, messing with the genome because you're not you're really just looking deeper into a organism to find out more about it like what its history is what it's related to so on and so forth and you can even like predict there's predictors like you know is this person potentially need to worry about a heart attack at a young age or or cancer i mean if there's enough uh evidence that a certain loci or allele in the genome does tend to have that um you know those problems like a heart attack or something then yes it's probably something that you should think about and maybe you know treat your body differently but marker assisted breeding is essentially the same thing you're basically saying you're trying to find markers like at at this allele you know this loci, which is what we did for the salmon, you know, we found Greb 1L, which was uh, one loci that said this fish is either going to swim back in the fall or swim up in the spring. And we wanted to protect the spring run because that, as we were tearing down these dams, which is this momentous thing, is like the largest river restoration project in in the world according to national geographic so i was like look we can't lose the fish that will inherit that space i mean historically those were the ones that went there we put these dams in they are now teetering on the brink of extinction we got to figure out a way to protect them before we lose them and then we don't have anything once these dams come out which is going to happen in the next year or two um we won't have anything to go repopulate up there. So we actually were able to get the endangered species listing through that that study. And there's tons of similarities between like that. I look at the spring run and then that fall run and I'm like, you know, autoflower <laughs> photo period. <laughs> and so that's kind of what, you know, made me so comfortable with with the marker assisted breeding. It's like I had done this before. The whole purpose was to save natural resources, save like our our beautiful environment and the wildlife here in Humboldt. And uh, you know, now we can apply it to 
like all the good reasons that we were talking about earlier to have autoflower genetics. And there's, I, I would really argue with someone that said that there's something morally or ethically wrong with marker assisted breeding because, you know, it's, it doesn't even take a lot of electricity to run. <laughs> <laughs> like the PCR machine is really a pretty simple piece of equipment. And the way you get the answer is with these gels and they just, one of them glows when you put it under a black light. If the answer's no, maybe it glows. And if the answer is yes, it does not glow. And so that's exactly what we do. It's the same thing as the plant sex tests that are available through all these different genomics companies. We've been using uh, LeafWorks a lot lately. And we've got this feminized certification thing. But that's the same concept. And and really, if you've ever used one of those, then in a way, if you do breed, then you've actually done marker-assisted breeding because you've used a marker that told you whether the plant is going to be a male or a female. And then, you know, maybe that made it a little easier for you to do your breeding project in the long run. So I think that one of the things about, you know, people hear the first two words, right? Genetic marker. And then they, they immediately jump to GMO when really it's, it's really just another analysis test, like anything that you'll get at any cannabis. I mean, you know, it's more complex than, than you get at most cannabis labs. My, my point is though, they are passive, right? It's, it's you trying to read the plant to understand it. It's not invasive, something like CRISPR is, where you're actually going in and splicing and editing the genome and then inserting genes that are not um, uh, indigenous to the plant or, or you know? And, and I think that it's the vocabulary that is off-putting to a lot of people more than the fact that you're like, oh, well, we did a test to find out if this particular particular attribute is in the DNA, which makes it sound a lot safer. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And I think that that is like the common misconception. And you know, if people, <clears throat> excuse me, get to understand it a little bit more, that you know, it, it won't be quite so scary because it, it is exactly that. You're basically screening <clears throat> a population for this desirable trait that you're looking for. And then you're kind of, it's, it's a time saver as well. Like you're then saying, you know, all right, we want this trait. So if, if we're sprouting a bunch of seeds, if we know which the marker for that trait, we can then take tiny snips of, of tissue or like little bits of leaf and submit it, or do our own PCR and then just get a whole bunch of, yes, this one has it and, and no, this one doesn't. All right. So this, this last question I'm going to ask slowly so you can take a sip of your harjata and, uh, and take care of that cough. So I'm going to ask it really slowly so that you can have your sip. So, you know, um, even though you've been, you know, doing this cannabis breeding for more than 20 years and, and Humboldt, you know, uh, Humboldt 
seed company has been around for that long, you're still a pretty young guy and you've got lots of years of creativity left in you. But, you know, you've, you've talked to me and, and, you know, earlier on this show about how, you know, you've always got kids around in your life and, 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 you know, you've just shared with us that you're, you know, a biologist and an environmentalist. You think about generations of things. So I can imagine that you probably had a lot of good folks working for you and you're probably thinking about the next generation of people who are going to hold it down in cannabis and specifically Humboldt cannabis, right? Because, you know, more than just cannabis as an industry, Humboldt cannabis is an important American heritage. So my question is, is, you know, how much energy do you put into mentoring the next generation of breeders? And, and, and if you, you know, if you're into that, how, how do you go about doing that? I'm, I'm, the goal with this question is I'm, I'm hoping to maybe inspire folks because, you know, not only do we want to inspire folks to, to breed cannabis because, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but there's going to be people who come after us and we need to make sure we instill them with our values um, before the cannabis plant becomes totally commoditized. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I brought um, Benjamin Lind into the company. Um, I don't even remember when, but that was in the early days. And <clears throat> Ben is, is a huge part of our breeding program, a huge part of the company. So shout out to Ben. He's a little bit younger than me, but uh, I, I probably can't say that I exactly mentored Ben. But, you know, within the company, definitely, I, I don't ever really think of it as people working for Humboldt Seed Company or working for me or anything like that. It's always, you know, if I'm not making them excited about what they're doing, then I'm not, in my opinion like being a good leader in the company. And so that is exactly it. You know, you have to not only <clears throat> mentor and teach, but allow folks within the business to develop their own uh, ideas and nuances, even if maybe, you know, you've done it before and you might say, look, I don't know. Sometimes you have to kind of, just take an educated guess at like sometimes it's it's important to let people kind of try and and experience the same failures that you've experienced over the years but yeah i think it is really important i mean i started breeding at the through getting to know people that i really really respected and loved that were both cannabis farmers and you know, the beauty, the phenomena of Humboldt is that it was never just a place where people grew wonderful cannabis. It was a place where people worked together to grow wonderful cannabis. They worked together to embellish community. They worked together to foster, you know, these environmental movements. They fostered social movements, social justice, economic justice. And that has been a major underpinning of Humboldt Seed Company ever since, you know, I first walked into the courthouse so many years ago, um, even before I knew it was going to be a seed company, you know, it was basically like, look, how do we um, keep these hills alive? And 
one of the things, it's a very rural place. So we have to band together and that needs to persist through this change that we're experiencing right now with it becoming more of kind of this traditional economy where you've got, you know, all these pressures, fiscal pressures, let's just say, and, and then now more obviously taxes and, you know, the, even the County itself as, as conducive as, as Humboldt, I, I have to give it to Humboldt. Like it started out a little rocky, but our County government is now really understanding and embracing that the businesses, the small businesses and trying to, um, you know, help, help us make this transition. And so all the way from the County supervisors to the, the planning department to our local wildlife officials to the old growers that, you know, have some of them have come sort of out of the, the hills and are now, you know, working in the license space. Some of them are maybe have scaled back their grow a little bit just so that they can stay in that sweet spot of, of having a grow, but not a grow that's going to get red flagged by the, cause you know, it humbled. It was, it's so much harder now to grow cannabis in Humboldt than it was four years ago. I mean, Four years ago, we were having this influx of everybody had heard, you know, oh, you go out to Humboldt, it's a green rush and make a bunch of money. And and to be honest, like most of those people came out here, they all they wanted was to move here because of the money and and weed and it was cool or whatever, fell flat in their face. And most of them have now moved on to whatever they're doing next somewhere else. But, you know, really it has been those people that were here because of the place and because, and, and really fell in love with this community and, and the tightness that, that being in a more of a rural environment creates, you know, you, and I don't want to make us sound like, you know, we're a bunch of rednecks out in the boonies, even though there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> but you know, we're, we, we've innovated a lot here too. And coming together has made that innovation. You know, it, we've changed the whole cannabis community around the world, you know, created so much stuff. We innovated, we've made our mark and I'm super proud of that. Mendocino Trinity too. Like, I don't want to just, be all Humboldt centric because there's so many great people in in the whole area here, Oregon. Um, but yeah, we gotta pass that. We gotta pass that community feeling down through. And my daughter, I know you probably were referring to my daughter. She's 21 years old now, and literally was on my back when I was out planting the first cannabis you know like she's been there since day one and and we're really tight and um she <laughs> she does a lot with the company and she's actually really did you know has started to guide some of the breeding a little bit and you know she has years of experience 
under her belt. And, you know, you just can't deny this plant loves experience. It loves um, people that have that are familiar with it and, and a familiar touch as a as a cannabis breeder, I think, is one of the most important uh, traits that you can have as a breeder is familiarity. I think that's, you know, a sign of some of the best uh, companies in any industry that they've got not only mentorship, but also, um, you know, family companies when it gets passed down to generation. And sure, you know, family companies, generation to generation, they break too. Um, but there's something about being totally immersed in any kind of education which really gives you a much more rounded um, awareness of it. And, and it's funny how you mentioned how, you know, the, the, the Humboldt area, the you know, Emerald Triangle in general, you know, it attracts people for lots of reasons. And if their heart's not in the right place, it also spits them back out. Yeah. <laughs> and, sure, uh, sure. and, uh, and, and, you know, um, I, I think that's, I, I think that's okay. Yes. I, <laughs> Thank God. Right. <laughs> well, you know, people are people and uh, we try to live as harmonious with all of them. And, you know, it fortunately, you're exactly right. Fortunately, it, it takes a certain um, kind of person to to be here. And, you know, we've had I, you know, I've been here since 1995. Uh that was when I was 18 years old and, you know, traveled around the world since then doing the environmental stuff. But I never once thought to myself, uh, you know, I'm going to live somewhere else. It was always, this place is beautiful too, but, but I miss humble and I'll be back, uh, real soon. So well, I don't think that we're going to top that as a place to end this interview, brother. Thank you so much for sharing your time and experience and, and your good heart with us, man. You know, um, I'm glad that there are well-grounded, kind people like you breeding our favorite plant and passing it down, you know, through the generations. So thank you so much. Thank you, Shango. It's really been an honor to be on with you right now. It's something I've been watching your shows for a long time and you know this is a it's a little bit of an achievement for us as well so right on man i'm glad so uh so you know if you're listening and you'd like to learn more about nat pennington you can or or if you want to check out his seed catalog um you can visit humboldtseedcompany.com and uh, you can also follow the humboldt seed company instagram at the humboldt seed company um, on Instagram. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I will be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. 
Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.